Okay, today is September the 1st, 2011. Somebody already pulled my page off, so thank you for whoever did that. <laughs> Just a quick report. Pete is home. He's got, he had a pacemaker put in yesterday and it appears that it's doing okay. Uh, Helen Lacombe got home at 3.30 today from an operation she had about five or six days ago. And she's got to go through a regimen, but it appears that she is doing, um, is managing. We want to remember those uh, in our prayer as well as so many others that have health issues. We've got rain. We've got, well, we don't have rain. We have rain issues. <laughs> and there's moisture out in the Gulf. I don't know if it's coming this way, but the Lord knows what we need, but it doesn't hurt to remind him and to ask for rain. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are our God, that we recognize that you are in control of all things, and you've given us your mighty word that we are to learn, we are to incorporate it into our day-by-day thinking. It is to be in our stream of consciousness, not just filed away somewhere back there in our neurons We are to think divine viewpoint. In order to do that, we have to keep those spiritual batteries charged. And we do that by taking in your word every single day. So we thank you for this time that we have, this portion of the day that we set aside to study, to grow, to meditate upon, and to appreciate all that you have for us. Pray that you'll help us to focus, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue with what I think is essential for someone to understand uh, the Word of God, the dual meaning of words in the Bible. Apart from this, you will be confused, and there's not many people who understand that words and phrases have more than one meaning. And I'm talking about the type of meaning that will either make it positional or experiential. Now, there are believers who don't use this particular vernacular. They don't use these terms necessarily. But we have used them for a while, and I think they are good to express what we're really, uh, what we have to do in our own mind and distinguish between what takes place at the moment of salvation all those permanent things that God accomplishes on our behalf and other things that we must do under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that are our bailiwick, our responsibility. And the thing is, the same words are used, the same phrases are used, but they mean different things in different places in the Bible. And it is extremely important that we are able to determine the distinctions, the differences in these terms and these words. Most people who embrace false doctrine do not make these distinctions. Nearly everything that they see in the Bible, they put a positional context. In other words, they relate just about all of the phrases, the 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 words, the terms that we use here in a salvific way. They think it pertains to eternal salvation. 
and you have heard me say over and over, the great majority of the time, these words and phrases are not used in a salvific way. They are not referring to eternal salvation at the moment that we hear the gospel. That's what they usually are not referring to. Once you understand this, then you are able to make those distinctions and understand that most of the New Testament is imploring us to use these terms, these words, in a way that will help us grow spiritually, not to attain salvation. Okay? So, we're talking about the dual meaning of words in the Bible. We have the positional, you'll see in blue, and we have the experiential, we have in red, we have the definition there. The positional depends on God apart from works. This is what He accomplishes for us. It's done normally, or for the most part, at the moment of salvation, when we believe in, in Jesus Christ, God does a tremendous number of things for us. And a believer that doesn't grow up spiritually, if he doesn't get taught properly, he's never going to know these things even took place. For instance, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many believers can give a definitive answer if you ask them, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I would say very few. And yet this is essential. Most people will try to connect it to water baptism in some way, which has nothing to do with water baptism, but they hear that word, baptism, so they connect it with water. If you don't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you won't understand the importance of being in Christ. So many believers are out there, at least professing believers, that think being in Christ is when you are doing good things. When you feel close to God, you're in Christ. When you are out helping people, that you are in Christ. And I'm telling you, you're not in Christ because you do these good things. You do the good things because you're in Christ and because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do... The, the, the Being in Christ is positional. It doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with how we live our life, what our behavior is, whether we obey or disobey. It has nothing to do with being in Christ. But that's just one illustration to show you how people get this mixed up. Being in Christ has to do with the positional sense, what God does for us at salvation. Now, we've already covered two of these, overcoming the world, Positionally, in 1 John 5, 5, and since we went over these last night, we're not going to go over these scriptures again. But I will remind you that I ask you, it wasn't last night, it was Tuesday night. I ask you, what does it mean to overcome the world in a positional sense? And you all kind of staggered a little bit there, and you were telling me things that were experiential because that's the way our minds go. But finally, you came around, you started understanding that in a positional sense, it doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what God did. And so we have irrevocable assets that God gave us. He imputed to us eternal life. He imputed to us His own righteousness. We were regenerated. We were sanctified. We were, God was propitiated for what Christ did on the cross 
and we were regenerated. All these things are what God did at the moment of salvation for us. And because of that, we have what I was brought up or trained as an invisible portfolio of divine assets. Now, you say that to most people and they're going to say, what? You think of a, port a portfolio, you normally think of maybe financial assets and how they're arranged. Uh, when I went to school, we used to have a portfolio. It was just a, a file we kept papers in. That's what we called it anyway, was a portfolio. Did you bring your portfolio today? Well, the, the gist of it is the invisible divine assets, your portfolio of divine assets, all has to do with the positional, what God has done for us. As you grow, one of the things that should happen as you grow and you get more doctrine is you start looking back and think, wow, God took care of all these things. I didn't even think about all that we needed until you get down the road a ways, doctrinally speaking, and you have learned some doctrine. You've been able to connect the dots. You, then you start to see what all He's done for us positionally. He has enabled us to overcome the world, and apart from those divine assets, apart from the ministries of the Holy Spirit, we couldn't overcome a donut. Well, we could eat it, but we couldn't overcome it. So that is one of the things that happens, and the young man sitting in the green shirt back there came up with the most important factor, I think, with regards to... Uh, the spiritual assets that we received, and that is that Jesus Christ broke the back, the power of the old sin nature in our lives. And because of that, now we can be overcomers. You see, unbelievers in a spiritual sense cannot overcome anything. The only thing they can produce is human good, which is unacceptable to God, and sin. That's the only thing they can produce because they have no... Human spirit, they have no Holy Spirit. They can be moral. That's their human good aspect. And they can produce sin. And the most moral person you have ever known still is a sinner and they still produce sin because even unbelievers, you know unbelievers can out-moral believers. It's easy to understand. If I thought my eternal destiny depend upon, depended upon me being nearly perfectly moral, I would probably pause when I want to do something, I'm tempted to do something that is not moral, whatever it may be. So the positional overcoming of the world is based on everything that Christ did for us on the cross and the divine assets that were a result of that. Experientially, we went to Revelation 2, 7, Revelation 3.21, Revelation 21.7. And each one of those, remember how it starts out? To the one who overcomes. And that is a qualification. Not everybody is going to overcome. The ones who are going to overcome are going to have what it says here experientially. They are depending on God plus their own works. I hope you understand when I say our good works, it's not saying I'm committed, I'm going to start doing more good works, and I am going to get those rewards. That's not how it happens. 
First of all, you have to be right with God. You can't be right with God unless you are humble, unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then He enables you to produce the divine good that is rewardable. Apart from that, it's just human good. It's nothing. We, we understand that, don't we? So the experiential overcoming the world is using the divine assets that we have learned primarily 1 John 1, 9, to get us out of carnality by acknowledging our sins to God, puts us empowering the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us at that time, and He gives us the supernatural strength that we can love anyone and everyone. Apart from that, I don't care how nice you may be or how tolerant you may be, you can't turn off what's going on up here. And there are certain people that are so offensive to us, they just grade on us. And you can smile and have some kind of sanctimonious look on your face, and inside you're saying, that dirty, you know, like this. We all have that. And so experientially, we have to use the assets that God has given us, and that is to the one who overcomes is the one who is using the assets that God has given us taking in the Word, applying the Word, to be experientially sanctified, set apart for God. That's what He wants. That's how we glorify Him. The next one was inheritance. We have a positional inheritance. We went to Galatians 3.29, Romans 14, 13-14. And we saw there that that type of an inheritance depends upon the faith we have at salvation. Any person that believes in Jesus Christ has overcome the world for what God has done for him positionally. Now, a person can overcome the world in that sense and be a loser spiritually. They may never grow. They are going to inhabit heaven because of the faith they had in Jesus Christ. And we went to the experiential, Romans 8, 17, Colossians 3, 23 through 24, there, we found that we have to, again, work and avail ourselves of God's power and His assets in order to have an inheritance. You see, most, most believers think, well, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. I hope I get there. And I'm going to be as nice as I can. I'm going to go to church every once in a while just, just for insurance, just to make sure that I have... A, some kind of uh, assurance that I'm going to heaven. Now, that's, that is pathetic, isn't it? That's the thinking of the mediocre believer. They're just trying to get by. As far as an inheritance, they don't understand that there are going to be inheriting rights in heaven. And only those who use their time and the assets that God has given us are going to have inheriting rights in heaven. That's where the opportunities, the privileges, and to be able to do things that others will not be able to do, like eat from the tree of life that has wonderful uh, blessings added to it. They're going to be able to do that, and that's part of their inheritance. Okay, now, saved. We're going to start here tonight, so we're going to go to Ephesians. Well, let's not even go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We don't need to, do we? Huh? We don't need to go to the Bible for Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Why are y'all smiling? This, is one, this was our first memory verse. Now, this is very evident 
Yes? The kids know it? <laughs> well, I, the ones that come to the young people's class, they know it. I was teaching them uh, that. That was one of the first ones they learned. The only difference is I had them stand up in front of everyone else and they had to say it. And if they didn't know it, then they weren't real comfortable about that, and next time they would know it. Anyhow, um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you sozo in the Greek. That's the word. In, in the positional sense, it means that it's a moment of time. You have faith in God and you are eternally, completely and totally saved, delivered from the lake of fire based on that faith. That is salvific type of faith. The great thing about that verse is that verse says that it's a gift. Salvation is a gift and it's not of works. There's another verse that we learned about, Romans 4 and 5. Remember? Romans 4 and 5. Then we have Titus 3 5. I haven't decided yet for Sunday's new memory verse, but I can tell you this is on the short list. Titus 3 5. Anybody know Titus 3 5? By the washing of regeneration. Remember that part? Yeah. Well, let's just turn to it. Titus 3, 5. All these verses that, that, that uh, deal with the positional sense of this word that are salvific says it's not of works. You ever notice that? Contrary to what most people think, even a lot of believers don't have that straight. Titus 3, chapter 5. He saved us. That would be sozo again. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Look at that. Not of not of the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. One of the words that we're going to get to, and I don't know, we probably won't even get to it tonight, is righteousness. You all understand righteousness that is positional, salvific. Where do we learn that? Now, you probably already know it. Romans 4, 5. To the one who does, let's go, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so when we get to Titus 3, 5, and it says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. See, we can produce a righteousness, but it's not the kind of righteousness that God accepts to be eternally saved. The only way we get that righteousness is through what? Believing in Christ. So this is another one that is salvific because it has, again, believing. 
Anytime something is salvific, anytime that it has to do with positional, it is going to be directly stated or alluded to that it's about belief or faith. That's one of the major keys right there. Now let's look at saved in an experiential sense. And you're going to find that if when you use... This is the same Greek word, by the way. There's no grammar. There's no morphology. There's nothing here that would in the Greek that would tell you whether it's positional or experiential. It's always the context. You can't tell it by the Greek word there. And when you have it in an experiential sense, I think the best way to interpret it or translate it is to say delivered because that's what it means, delivered. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians. Philippians 2, 12. Philippians comes right after Ephesians. Philippians, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your deliverance with fear and trembling. Now, there are people who are mixed up and they try to make that salvific. And it's completely contrary to all the positional or salvific verses that have to do with being saved because it all has to do with faith. And this says, work out your salvation. If you were talking to a Jehovah Witness, he would unabashedly tell you, oh yes, you have to work for your salvation. Well, where does it say that? He said, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. What are you going to do? Are you ready to answer that? It's very simple. That's when you tell him, oh, I understand what you're saying. You, know, you see, that word saved can have a salvific sense when it's talking about eternal salvation. And it has a temporal sense or an experiential sense when it's just talking about delivering someone from a multitude of things. Do you know that they don't even know that that's, that's even possible? They have never heard that before. And when you tell them that there are two senses to being saved, when English here, work out your salvation, now that word would be soteria, exact same word that is used when it is in, used in a salvific sense, only here the context. We can't work for our salvation. We can't. I'm talking about eternal salvation. There's no way that we can do it. But this is talking about deliverance. What do we have to be delivered from? We are believers. We're going to heaven. Our destiny is secure. So what is it talking about? Work out your salvation. What is it that we have to be delivered from? How about the world, the flesh, and the devil? How about that? We have to do battle on those fronts every single day. Every single day. And if we don't, If we don't overcome 
if we don't utilize those divine assets that I'm talking about, then we're going to be casualties in the angelic conflict. Are we still going to heaven? Of course. Are we going to inhabit heaven? Of course. If you don't do battle on those three fronts and you don't work out your salvation, your deliverance, are you going to inherit heaven? No. Are you going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ? Yes. Are you going to get rewards and decorations, privileges and opportunities for all eternity? No. That's what it's talking about. Can you talk to a Jehovah Witness when he does that? We say, oh yeah, you've got to work for your salvation. He goes here. If you don't know this key, what can you say? This isn't talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about being delivered from the test that we have. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify with self-restraint. But women will be preserved. You know what that Greek word is there? So-so. In some translations say, saved. I'm reading the New American Standard. I'm, I'm almost certain that the King James. Anybody have a King James? Saved, yeah. It, it, what it said, but women shall be saved through bearing of children. Well, if we're going to keep the pattern, if it always is referring to eternal salvation, then ladies, if you don't have a child, you're going to hell. Would anybody buy into that? No, that's absurd, isn't it? But that's the way they take it. This, this might be one of the very few verses that they say, oh, well, that's not salvific. And you know what I would say? How do you know? You know what they would say? Context. And they'd say, that's how you can tell. You got it? You could go to this verse and say, you can't just go by the word saved and make it salvific every time you see it. You have to go by the context. What is the verse saying? What is the author meaning? And they couldn't, no one, I, I've never heard anybody, not even Jehovah Witness, not Mormons, and I've talked to these people, no one has ever went to this verse and said, see, this is a qualification, this is what you need. It says that women are going to be saved, look. But women shall be saved, are preserved, so so through the bearing of children. Well, who would say that you have to bear children to go to heaven? Well, nobody's going to say that. And this, what I'm showing you, this is a way that you can show even the most dyed-in-the-wool person that just because it saved, says saved doesn't mean that it's talking about eternal salvation. And how can you tell? By the context. And it's the same in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You can tell by the context because when it says work out your salvation and you go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. You go to Romans 4, 5, not by works of uh, uh, not uh, not to the one who works, but the one who believes. Titus three five. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. The Bible has to be coherent. It can't say all those things about not working, 
and then go to Philippians 2.12 and say, work out your salvation. You see? The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And we have to rightly divide it. Michael. Yeah, the the uh, disciples in the boat when the storm came. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember how they cried out, "Lord, Lord, save, save us!" us. <laughs> yeah, well, that was they wanted to be delivered from the storm. They didn't. They weren't talking about eternal salvation. Right. That same word there is sozo also. Right. There, there's a number of verses. Oh, just there, like there's that. so many of them. this. I tell you what. Once you understand what I'm trying to impart here, it's fun. I mean, you start. The Bible actually starts leaping. The words leap off the page and you start saying, oh, well, that's not salvation. Won't you just keep it? Thank you. Um, You you start being able to determine by context. And that's the only way you can do it because the Greek words are the same. But you have to have that fundamental foundation that eternal salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. Everywhere, in every verse, that's the case. Outside of that, it's experiential. It's not positional, and it's not salvific. Got it? Okay, that was uh, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 15. You ladies, you ladies that have had children, you don't have to worry, you're going to heaven. <laughs> uh, that was tongue-in-cheek. Yes, ma'am. No, in context, what this is saying is that Paul is putting women in... Go ahead. (laughs) Yes, you have to use it. Just asking if uh, this salvation for women bearing children is help that they get from the Lord through that physical suffering. Uh, It's true that the Holy Spirit will help you through that suffering, but that's not what this is about. Paul is coming not coming down on women, but he's instructing them as to... uh, to be very respectful to um, the right behavior. And it would sound like a woman would think, well, I have no credibility. I'm just a nobody. And he says, no, through bearing children, you're not going to be obscure. This is how you're going to be delivered from obscurity. This is something that you can do that the men can't do. And and later on he says that, that men are dependent on women. To even exist, don't we? And women depend on men in other ways. He's just saying just because you don't have authority delegated to you and because you have a certain role, you have a certain place, you're not completely obscure, you're delivered through childbearing. That's the context. (laughs) These ladies are going... They're looking at... I can stop and teach this right now, but I'd rather not. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather just press on and stay on our uh, subject matter here. Okay, so y'all got saved. You're squared away on that. That's one of the major ones. Every time someone sees the word saved, they think it's talking about eternal salvation. And the great majority of the time, it is not. It's talking about some type of deliverance. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. When they're crying out to the Lord all the time, when David was crying out to him, he wasn't saying, Lord, save me. He wasn't saying, I want to be saved to go to heaven. No, he said, deliver me. 
you know, the fat's in the fire. I'm, I need deliverance. I'm, I'm about to be overcome. Physical deliverance. Okay, here's the next one. We don't have to park here very long because we just went over this. Eternal life. Positionally, John 3.16. We don't have to go with that one, do we? You, know, you understand that one. That's the eternal life that's salvific. Romans 6.23. That's another one that would be a good one as a memory verse. Anybody know Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, what is it? Free gift. Now, let me tell you this. Before you quote Romans 6.23, you want to quote Romans 3.23 first because, see, that gives you the bad news. The bad news was what they need to know is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And so they've got to deal with that. They've got to process this. You don't have to be good to go to heaven. You have to be perfect. Only one person ever was perfect enough to qualify Christ. What can they do? Even the first part of that verse is still not good news, is it? For the wages of sin is death. That's what's backing up Romans 3.23. But you have that one significant word after that. But. But the free gift of God is eternal life, and that's the kind of salvific eternal life that we're talking about. Then you have experiential eternal life in Romans 2.7. We just went over these recently. Do you all still want to go over these? Take a look at them. Okay. Turn to Romans 2.7. It actually starts in verse 5. That's where the sentence starts at least in the English. Because of your, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who persevere in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. And now this is talking about seeking this. In doing good, seeking glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Do we have to seek eternal life? Now listen, listen, and listen. That's a quick question. Uh, excuse me, a trick question. Do we have to seek eternal life? The answer is yes. Isn't that what that verse is telling us? But it's not talking about salvific type of eternal life. Remember, I said I just called it experiential eternal life. The Bible uses it both ways. Just about everybody knows what eternal life means in a salvific way. Very few understand that this is a, a term, zoe ionion in the Greek, which means eternal life, but it's not talking about going to heaven. It's talking about a superior way of life, the spiritual way of life, the abundant life that God wants us to live. He tells us to take hold of eternal life. 
Well, we already have it because we believed in it, but taking hold of it is something altogether different. Turn to Galatians 6.8. Galatians is right before Ephesians. Galatians 6, 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. You notice that is future tense. What does John 3.36 say? He who believes in the Son, what? Has eternal life. We don't have to seek for it. We don't have to look for it in a future sense. We already have it from the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. So this is not talking about a salvific type of eternal life. We shall reap eternal life. It could just as easily say we shall reap the abundant life. It would mean the same thing. That's what experiential eternal life is. It is the abundant life. The supernatural life that believers should be living when they utilize the divine assets that God has given us. When you're thinking divine viewpoint, when you're applying doctrine, that's what that's talking about. Okay? We're moving on. Boy, we're making time, aren't we? (laughs) We're down to justified. Now, normally, let me tell you, normally, when you hear the term justified, even when pastors, theologians, and others speak, and they use the term justified, they use it in the sense of a positional sense. Across the board, usually, they make a distinction between being justified in a moment of time and it being salvific, which is the way it is normally used, and the distinction of being sanctified. Now, I'm, I'm just telling you the way, it, the, the normative uses of this. Most people think of justified, you're justified at the moment of salvation when you believe in Jesus Christ, but then you're sanctified over a long period of time. We would call it experiential sanctification. Now, we're, we're taking the microscope. We're going a little deeper, and we're saying, oh, well, yes, but there is a positional sense of sanctification also. I'm just telling you the way that's normally used. Now, we're going to get into justification here, and we'll look at the way that is normally used in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 through 28. So let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. By the way, Romans chapter 3 will knock your socks off. It is so loaded with doctrine. Romans chapter 8, same thing. Well, the whole book of Romans. Can, I don't know if you all can see from there. Can you see what my Romans 3... Can you see the highlights and the, and the red and the, all the... Well, it's there. <laughs> Well, you couldn't even see it from here. They might be able to see a little bit of color or something. I, got, I, just, I can't hardly read the words because I've doodled in there so much. Uh, Romans 3.24. You already heard what Romans 3.23 is. For all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, which means a satisfaction in His blood. What? Through faith. Do you see? Already we see that this justification is a gift down here in verse 25. In, in His blood through faith. You see those key words? What does that tell you? It's got to be positional, salvific. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might, might be just and a justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus Christ. He's just saying it over in different ways. Here He's saying that He might be the justifier of those who has faith in Jesus. It is the faith that we have in Jesus in that point that we are justified. And it's not by works at all. Verse 27, Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by law of faith. Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Wow. So we don't have to work to be justified, do we? We don't even have to work to be justified eternally, salvifically. Do we have to work to be justified experientially? Now think about that. These are trick questions. I'm warning you. <laughs> think about it. Do we have to work to be justified before God experientially? Yes, we do. And that goes against our grain because we have always, and you've heard me emphasize, we're just well, you just saw the verse. Look at it. Put a star around it. Next time that somebody thinks that they have to be justified by works, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart. Doesn't have anything to do from works of the law, period. And if somebody wants to make an argument that, well, being water baptized is not a work. Taking mass the Mass is not a work. Going to church, being a nice person is not a work. Well, listen, this is how you distinguish what is a work and what is not. Are you ready? If somebody ever wants to argue with you, when you say, when someone says, oh, yes, you have to be water baptized to be saved, you say, no, 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 that's a work. And the Bible says it's not a work, so lest any man should boast. And they say, oh, well, that's not a work. How are you going to deal with that? Here's how you do it. Anything outside of faith that you do is a work. That's the way the Bible uses it. It's God that produces and accomplishes everything at the moment of salvation. And anything that you do, did you hear? I said anything that you do outside of faith is a work. I hope y'all have your pens and y'all are just doodling all over your Romans three, twenty-three through twenty-eight. That whole part there is wonderful. We have time for one more verse. 
James 2, 21 through 24. This is a heck of a one to end on. <laughs> huh? Aren't I in... Oh, I'm still in positional. Oh, okay. Well, let's hurry up. Galatians 2, 16. This one you need to mark too. Three times he says it in one verse. Three times. Again... You need to know it in your mind or you need to write it in your Bible. You need to tattoo it on your hand. You need to have this somewhere so you'll remember the next someone trots out the idea that you have to work for salvation. Just put Galatians 2.16. Look at this. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, one, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we... Believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ by not uh, and not by the works of the law too. Since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That's three times in one verse. Now that's pretty hard to argue against, isn't it? That they think that you have to do some good work in order to be justified before God. And not only do you have to do good works, you have to continue to do good works. You have to maintain your salvation with good works. And every time someone tells me that, and I've talked to people about this, and I always, well, my first thing is questions, questions, questions. Okay, man, I'm glad you told me that. Because I thought it was something different. I just need a few details. How many good works do I need? Oh, well, I'm not sure. You've got to have good works, and you don't even know how many you need? And your eternal destiny depends. What what kind of good works do I, do I need to do? I mean, uh, is is it philosophical? Is it a manual? Uh, what kind of good works? Well, I'm not sure. How do you know if you have enough good works or not? Hmm? If if you have to go to if you can only get into heaven by having good works, even apart from Galatians two sixteen. And you don't know how many we have to have. You don't know what kind we have to have. How am I ever going to know if I have enough works that I can be secure that I'm going to heaven? And the person says, oh, well, nobody can know for sure that they're, they're going to heaven whether they have eternal life or not. Well, I'm confused now because First John chapter 5, verse 13, these things were written to those who believe in the Son of God that they might know that they have salvation, eternal life. Now, I'm, now, you're really confusing me because we, we have to know. And if we can't know how many works it takes or what kind of works that we, it takes, and, and the Bible says in Galatians 2.16, three, three times it's not of works. works. Galatians 2.8 and 9 says it's not of works. Romans 4.5 says it's not of works. Timothy, I mean, Titus 3.5 says it's not of works. I'm really confused. And you know what? They're going to be confused too. And they're going to start thinking, oh, wow. Three times in one verse. That's the positional sense. And we don't have time probably for Romans 2.13. Let's go back to Romans.
Okay. Uh, Romans 2.13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But wait a minute. I thought we were justified by faith. This says, it's not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified before God. Does that contradict all these things that we've been talking about? No, it's talking about two types of justification. There's two types of eternal life. There are two types of salvation, two types of inheritances, and two types of overcoming the world or two ways to overcome the world. And that's what we're looking at. You see how important that is? It's not that it's contradictory. It's just talking about two types of justification. And then in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, this is our last verse we'll go to. And I said, <laughs> what, a, what a one to go to to end it on. Y'all know where James is? Way back there, right before First Peter. James chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. I'll probably have to spend some more time going over this, but I'll just bring it up tonight so we'll finish out the justification part. Verse 21 of James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, what, what kind of righteousness is that? It's positional, isn't it? Yes, it's positional. Yes, it's positional in verse 23. And Abraham believed, there you have the faith, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, right there you have a positional sense of righteousness right in the middle of these verses that are talking about experiential justification. The Bible does that. And you have to be able, remember I said if it's faith and it's directed toward Jesus Christ, what is it? It's positional. We, we went last time, last Tuesday, we went over a verse that had both a positional and experiential in the same verse. Verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the foundation, the foundational verse for people who believe that you have to have faith plus works to be justified before God. There are two types of justification. We are justified before God by our faith. We're justified before man by our works. Okay? It's that simple. Yes. Right?
Yeah, I was going to say that verse 25, if we continue, when you were teaching Joshua 2.9, that was experiential. She was, she was uh, delivered from all the death of when they, uh, the walls came down. She was justified by works. But we, what we all, all, what we learned was that she had already been justified by her faith before God. Now she's being justified by her works. This is critical for us to understand this, and you don't have to be afraid of people who go to James chapter two. And in fact, you can relish it, because James is doing the same thing that Paul was doing in uh, Romans chapter three. These believers were not growing. They weren't applying their doctrine. And he was getting after them because they weren't doing the work. It has nothing to do with salvation, eternal salvation. Okay? Well, you can see I was looking for that uh, PowerPoint before we began because I thought, again, we might get all the way through this and I was going to show you something different. But we're halfway through. I hope that y'all aren't... Uh, well. Let me put it this way. I started to say I hope that y'all aren't getting tired of these PowerPoints and what I'm teaching here. And if you're getting bored and if you're not, you're thinking, I wish we'd get on to something else, something is wrong. This is vital. I'm giving you keys that will unlock mysteries for you in the Bible that you will be able to apply and have confidence and you'll have appreciation for God that he has given you these keys because people don't know this. They don't know that these terms have dual meanings. And once you understand that, and someone, uh, God gives you the opportunity to talk to someone that believes you have to have works in order to be saved, you can with complete confidence explain to them, oh, the verses that you're looking at are experiential. They're not salvific. Use your terms, whatever, however you want to say it. But once you have that, you're going to be emboldened. You can't wait to tell people who are confused that don't know these keys that well, maybe the Holy Spirit can use not only to save them, but to get them on the road to learning and seeing that there is no contradictions in the Bible. So, let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to look at these words and these phrases that we will understand perfectly that there are no contradictions and that you in your marvelous grace has given us this opportunity to sort this out for our own sake that we can incorporate it into our long-term memory and explain to others who are in the depths of darkness. They don't understand grace and they're still trying to work to be justified before you in a positional sense. So we pray that you will help us to inculcate these things into our souls so that we can be on the front line and we can be witnesses for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.